the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course. And it's produced with the support and encouragement of my patrons, listeners who enjoy the show and let me know with a financial high five. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, I'll let you know how at the end of the episode. Today, I'm talking again with Emrys Miller. The first time he was on the show, we talked about graphic design and shamanism. This time, we're delving even more deeply into the niche that Emrys calls the meaning of life. This is an area that Emrys has been working in in such an interesting way. He's been the art director for both a yoga magazine and also Humanist magazine. We had this conversation at his kitchen table in Victoria, BC. Okay, let's start by talking about uh, Michael Shermer's article in Scientific American Online. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes because everybody should read it because I love this very short blog post. It's called Anomalous Events That Can Shake One's Skepticism to the Core. And it's about something that happened to him that was so out of the ordinary that even this guy editor of Skeptic Magazine, found himself contemplating mysticism, the mystery of life, the paranormal, the supernatural, that sort of thing. So I want to start by asking you, have you, Emrys, ever had an anomalous event like that that shook your skepticism? Um, no. No, I haven't. All my experiences have been pretty easy to explain using just general elementary school science and (laughs) such. Um, So when you read that essay, and this is someone you've worked with fairly closely, and uh, you were the webmaster for Skeptic Magazine for a long time, Uh, you've worked on, um, you know, in that scene with atheism and skepticism and I'm wondering what you think then, having read that article. I I love that. So so my background, I run a graphic design studio and I worked for Michael Shermer and Skeptic Magazine. And what you're describing is an article in Scientific American or a, a column because Michael Shermer, in addition to running Skeptic Magazine, he's a columnist for Scientific American and writes this piece about this somewhat spooky coincidence that is so unlikely to happen randomly and has so much significance in what it meant to their family just the the sort of gesture this is his wedding and his wife is missing her grandfather and wished that her grandfather could be there for the wedding and a broken artifact from her history her grandfather's old radio that was broken just randomly starts playing for one day during the wedding in like a desk drawer yeah like buried in the yeah. back they had to they were searching all over the place where's the music coming from right in the moment when she's tearfully telling her fiance on their wedding day that she wished her grandfather was there yeah and the music comes on and they find it and it's her grandfather's radio yeah it gives me chills Yeah, and that's, I shouldn't say that I've never had an experience like that. I've had a lot of small experiences like that. Never so grandiose. My favorite line 
in Michael Shermer's piece when he's describing it in Scientific American. How does he, as a skeptic, make peace with this experience that they had? And in one of his lines here is, I savored the experience more than the explanation. You know what? I use that line with my clients all the time. And I didn't even remember just having re- reread that article just now, I didn't remember that I lifted it from him. <laughs> but I say that to them all the time when we're doing regression work, you know, that it doesn't matter if this is a past life or a memory from your childhood. It doesn't matter if it's quote unquote real, just savor the experience more than the explanation because it's the experience you're having now that's meaningful. Right. You know, yeah. it means something to you. So I, now when I hear a story like that, I get really lit up, I get really excited, it makes me want to explore the the mystery, and it's what I would call a numinous experience, right? You have an encounter with something that feels greater than yourself. So I can't imagine going through the world not having those experiences. And I, when I think about skepticism, and even humanism to a certain extent, I feel like bereft of that magic. Right. So what what happens well, to magic? Uh, a lot of it, I think, I mean, my experience is, so I worked for five years for Skeptic Magazine, and I also worked for five years for Humanist Perspectives Magazine, which also really focused on inquiry that's based on reason rather than intuition, and especially they avoided anything that had any relationship to spirituality and mysticism in conflict with reason. Mm -hmm. I do think that sometimes they are tone deaf to to that quality of engaging with the mystery. Okay, can you just define humanism for a second? Because you did a nice explanation there. But I I just want to make sure that the listeners know, what is humanism? Well... I won't do justice to a proper historical explanation of humanism because it can mean many things. The way that the magazine I was working for used it and that it's used most often in contemporary ways is it's it's a life stance, like a religious life stance, but it has no supernatural behind it. And how they differ from atheism is that they are atheists that are interested in ethics and community. Mm-hmm. And they're proclaiming that as part of their life stance. Mm-hmm. So they're humanitarian, community-oriented atheists. Got now, it. it does get more complex. It doesn't necessarily have to have ties to atheism at all. I mean, also, there could be Christian humanists, but the idea is that they are dealing with things in a very secular way. They aren't looking to the supernatural to make decisions for them. They're making all their decisions with human capabilities focused on the reason side. So yes, going back to the tone deaf, that is an expression that I actually saw in an article from G's Magazine, a magazine I love, a very, very, very liberal Christian magazine. And it was- Their tagline, we should say Oh, sure contemplative cultural resistance ah. one of the best yeah Ruben I, and I were in an article in G's magazine and, and that's how I came to know about them and uh, the journalist is Mennonite and so G's magazine all these Mennonites in the middle of Canada who are doing this very uh, socially 
engaged, politically engaged, uh, you know, from a from a social justice perspective, uh, publication. So, uh, so tone deaf. I like this idea. So that came from G's magazine. Yeah, and it was an article that was criticizing a famous atheist, Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. And so Richard Dawkins has written quite emphatically that he thinks we should just outgrow religion. He looks at the old religions, like let's say the the Greek gods and Roman gods and Norse gods, and he says, you know, we as a culture, we have outgrown that almost entirely, that, you know, people aren't sacrificing their animals to ancient Greek gods. We are now finding other ways to work in society. And he's saying, you know, we should now do that with Christianity and Islam and Judaism. And it's, you know, a very controversial statement, of course. And I can, I can understand his statement, and I sometimes share it. But a lot of other times, I feel the sentiment which I read in G's magazine, which is that he's tone deaf to theology. And in a way, he's tone deaf to the relevance of religion and theology uh, in contemporary and future times. Right. So, but I think it's really important. Here's where the tone deafness comes into me is religion and spirituality are quite distinct. They're very separate for me. So you'll, you'll hear many people say I'm spiritual, but not religious. And I think that's very legitimate because, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm Quaker, but I'm not Christian. And so the Quakers are a religion, which is very difficult for me to become a member because I don't. I don't care much for organized religion, and I'm not interested in doctrine. But what I love about the Quakers is they're bound by a shared set of practices, not a shared set of beliefs, which is sort of um, echoing in what you said, that there could be a Christian humanist, because it's the shared practice of how are we going to live our life, not necessarily the belief about you know the nature of the cosmos. So when I hear um, atheists in particular, because I hear it a lot in that sphere, uh, when I hear them confuse and conflate spirituality and religion, I get a bit of a bee in my bonnet over that because they're 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 quite uh, distinct for me. So, do you, do you see a difference between religion and spirituality? Um, not so much actually. So I used to use the same separation that you just described, but. I guess my interest has been a bit more idealistic, or I'm more interested in where's the the baby rather than the dirty bathwater. <laughs> and so, for for me, religion should be spirituality done well. It's just that in practice, it's this mess. Like this is where I end up agreeing with Richard Dawkins. I mean, religion has, in my opinion, done at least as much harm as good. But what's the alternative? Humanism is trying to present one of the alternatives. And Richard Dawkins might say that is the best alternative, is that we should outgrow religion altogether and instead replace it with secular acting people or atheists that are choosing to live with community and ethics. 
Right. So that seems like a great organizing principle. I can totally get down with that. But I, I would go back to G's Magazine talking about the um, tone deafness because individuals, as individuals, I don't think we can really parse out okay, well, this is my civic life and this is my personal spiritual mm-hmm. life. I mean, they're, they're, they so influence each other. And I, so Richard Dawkins, you know, I don't particularly love the cut of his jib for myself because I yeah. find him a bit cynical. And I think that's a very common um, criticism of certainly atheism, maybe to a less extent humanism, but there's a bit of a cynicism there. And I recently read Barbara Ehrenreich's book, another very famous atheist, uh, called Living with a Wild God. And in it, she describes these numinous experiences, these sort of almost like interventions, these encounters with, I guess, supraconsciousness or not spooky supernatural like uh, Shermer's uh, article, but more spontaneous expanded states of consciousness from a a very young age, like 14 years old. And so she goes on to try to explain it scientifically. And in the end of her book, she's talking about making meaning of these, uh, these, the sort of deus ex machina experiences she's having in her life of something spiritual uh, uh, interrupting her normal consciousness. And in the end, she says, it doesn't really matter so much, I'm paraphrasing, what, what we believe uh, or what we're seeking because it appears uh, or it seems that it is seeking us. Hmm. And so she, she has a similar experience to Shermer in the end that it's like, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to, I can't explain these things. Humans simply cannot because that's, that's one of, I think, the... Um, this is one of my challenges around uh, the the more the, the scientific method applied to spirituality is that it's just not true that with enough time and effort we can figure everything out. I just don't believe that that's right, true, right. right? So so you you do your work as a graphic designer at this interesting intersection because yes, you've worked uh, in humanism, atheism, skepticism, but you also were uh, artistic director of uh, like a karma yoga magazine. <laughs> you know, you've done um, an interesting uh, multi-faith book with art and poetry and all of these things. So I've even seen you do the logo for like, I think like a Christian summer camp or something yes, like that. Yeah. Like there's all this. So, so how do you uh, make sense for your clients when you are really working in 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 the between the tension of two seeming opposites i don't think i have successfully explained it to my client you know my clients that participate in religion and spirituality are baffled how i could work for skeptic magazine and the humanist magazine and on the flip side my collaborator at the Humanist Magazine probably is holding his head in grief whenever I <laughs> work with the Spiritual Magazine and and religious projects like that logo for a Southern States Christian summer camp. Um, for me, it is all under the same category of inquiry, and it's ninety percent reason and deconstruction that's very analytical 
and then maybe 10% intuition. When you're doing and, your design work. Well, no, I mean, I think my the way I'm also trying to figure out what is the meaning of life, oh. what is, like, there's definitely room for that 10% of intuition. Mm-hmm. And that is an essential bit that I will never want to get rid of. Mm-hmm. But unlike maybe some of my friends in the spiritual and religious community, you know, I'm, I'm not a believer in a lot of it as tangible and happening in kind of a materialistic way. So I don't, I don't believe in the supernatural, but I love poetics. I think that the world is so complex, we can't approach it through reason most of the time and that we have to navigate it through intuition. So this is where this idea of uh, numinous experience is of interest to me. And most of the world we can't approach through reason alone. Just as human beings, we aren't competent enough to do it. The world is too complex. Mm -hmm. And so you have to use other facilities uh, like intuition. I mean, for example, someone uh, pitching in baseball you know, they could maybe decide this is going to be a certain kind of pitch or I'm going to throw it a bit to the left. You know, they can make some decisions like that. But at the end of the day, when they're throwing the ball, they are not using reason and articulating in a coherent way to the different muscles in their body Mm -hmm. the exact, you know, strength and momentum and stuff like that. It's all just intuitive at that point. They've thrown the ball so many times. They visualize where they want the ball to go. And their body does the rest. And they have to have a kind yeah. of touch that couldn't be explained. They have to have the, the somatic memory mm-hmm. of, you know, this is what it feels like when I want to throw this way. But also, how, how does this batter respond? What's what's kind of the energy? What's yeah. the feel of him coming up? We, you lock eyes for a second. Exactly. And, you know, who's got dominance? Like, there's a, just all of that happens, right? It's the mind games of it. And that's huge in how we navigate the world. I want to ask you, though, about like art specifically, because you showed me an image in the spirituality magazine of Kuan Yin that you had done. Right. So I would imagine, like I'm looking around, I, I see various images and some icons in your house. I think they're probably uh, Leslie's, not yours, <laughs> <laughs> you know, your wife's. But, but I'm curious, so when you're... When you're pulling Kuan Yin out of the ether and bringing the meaning of her and the energy of her and what you're trying to capture for that particular article into the tangible realm, you're pulling right. it out of the intangible into the tangible, What, where is that coming from for you? Where do you believe the meaning and all of that comes from? Uh, one of my greatest interests and mentors is reading Joseph Campbell's work. Mm -hmm. And so Kuan Yin represents or is one of many historical ideas that we have in historical religious texts that we can bring into contemporary life and explore the concepts that, that that figure represented. This is where I think Richard Dawkins is is missing something in how valuable this stuff is, is you bring in a figure like Kuan Yin or like Jesus or like any number, I mean, even the the old Greek gods that he thinks we've disposed of. I mean, I think for my own kids, bringing in Athena to 
their own visualization is helpful in that they think about, you know, what are the attributes of that character? What, what part of that character's story can I learn from in my life? That stuff is all hugely valuable. And religion, you know, if done well, I think you can get rid of all that dogma and the focus can really be on learning from those stories. Mm -hmm. um, and the dogma even doesn't have to be something that you and I would probably want to rebel against if it's, if it's simply just uh, a community of people enthusiastically following some of these stories to see what they can, as mm. a community, learn from them. Mm -hmm. um, so if you could draw from the Pantheon which icon, what you call character, <laughs> would you say you identify with most? Or maybe there's two or three uh, as, as having been, you know, inspiring or uh, offering uh, guidance in particular for you on a spiritual okay. level. This is where a lot of these words end up blending into each other because in a way I'm, an, I'm definitely an atheist. But in another way, I'm definitely a Buddhist or a Christian because I would say, you know, both Buddha and Jesus would be inspirational to me. So Buddha is inspirational in that he just tried to clear his mind of different pressures like social obligation and preconceptions he had about the world in order to more clearly see what reality was. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's... That's what the core of good science is, too. And so the fact that these end up in different camps is kind of a shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would say, you know, if we were to, to define Buddhism as those that are inspired by Buddha's journey, then I'm a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. With Jesus, I love the idea of escaping war and violence and revenge by intentionally not retaliating. Mm -hmm. And so this idea, which I quite like about one of the main tenets of Christianity of not, of not fighting back, I think, I mean, that's something that we all need to learn if we're going to survive another millennium mm -hmm. as a society. So it's a very relevant attribute for us to keep studying mm -hmm. and riffing off of. So for me, Christianity is still relevant mm -hmm. in a post-Richard Dawkins age because <laughs> we need to take that to heart. And how do you get 7 billion people to take that to heart? I don't know. Maybe continuing on exploring Christianity in a liberal way is one of the ways. Another thing that I quite liked about Christianity, and so in this case, Jesus would be the figure that I'm finding inspiration from, is charity to the poor. Mm. That's another thing. If we don't have charity to the poor with 7 billion people, not only is it spiritually distractive to us and you know for our own individual health uh, of being content with who we are and living a an ethical moral life but also the world's going to be a big mess you can't have you know a couple billion impoverished people and think that the next millennia is going to go well mm -hmm. uh, for any of us so yeah those have been the two for me because i haven't gone deeply into re reading religious texts to know enough of the side characters right <laughs> yeah to know enough of the sidekicks and the and yeah. the yeah the background players uh 
Okay, so the traditional last question on uh, the Numinous podcast, Emrys, is from the Proust questionnaire. And the question is, what do you consider perfect happiness? Okay, I'm going to describe it in a very practical, personal, selfish way for me at this year in my life. What I'm trying to achieve is I'm trying to achieve alignment between how I'm living my life and what I think is good for how people should live their life in contemporary times in the big whole world picture, as well as bringing into that alignment being able to pursue my intellectual and artistic interests and doing it without a tremendous amount of pressure on me. So that is to say, you know, in my life, if there's a lot of domestic pressure or a lot of work-related pressure, that definitely takes joy away. Mm. So I need to have some space in order to really feel happy. But also, if I'm saying one thing and doing something else, Mm. I'm not happy at my core. Mm. So, or if I'm doing something that somewhere deep inside, I know it's harmful to the bigger system, you know, either to the local community or to the global community, then also that makes me unhappy. I mean, it's a very hard thing to make peace with our North American middle class or upper middle class lives, knowing environmentally and sweatshop labor and stuff, well, you know, what is going on in the global community to support it. Mm -hmm. So that's all part of the picture. And I do feel generally happy in my life because I feel like I'm going in the direction I want to go. I have a very rewarding career in that it's in alignment with my intellectual and artistic interests. I can explore that all. And I feel every year I'm becoming a better citizen. Mm. So this is a good time punctuated by bad times when mostly it's not about alignment, but my obstacles are when I get too busy Mm. and it drains the joy away from the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that you made time for this. I feel like you've done your (laughs) your civic duty as a global citizen. (laughs) So thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. A fascinating topic. I really wanted to read for you the last line of Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Living with a Wild God, because I butchered the paraphrasing so badly in that interview. But as I'm looking at it now, I I just have to keep going back farther and farther. There's just nowhere that I can parachute in to the end to encapsulate it. But if you really want to tackle this question of questioning and inquiry, I really cannot recommend her book, highly enough. It's absolutely uh, fascinating reading, getting into the mind of a cellular immunologist and really tackling what is beyond our five senses. Excellent, excellent reading. Thanks so much to Emrys for coming on the show and sharing his perspective. I love talking with somebody who approaches the world so differently from myself, and I like seeing where we come together and where we sort of uh, break apart, but uh, it makes me feel really good to lie down at night knowing that even people who think very differently from me have big hearts and, uh, and have as much compassion as, as I do. That's very reassuring to me. And thank you so much for spending time with me today. In particular, I'd like to thank all my listeners in Malaysia. Malaysia! 
Malaysia people, thank you very much for finding me. Thank you, iTunes, for making that even possible. This is amazing to me. Today's show notes is where you can find out more about Amaris. Amaris is the founder and creator of Rocket Day Arts, a communication studio that helps clients who aim to build a healthier future. So you'll find the link at my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. You'll just click the link for the podcast tab. And that's also where you'll find more information about becoming a patron. If you like the show, you can let me know with as little as a buck an episode. And finally, to ensure you never miss an episode, sign up to receive notifications at the bottom of my site, carmenspaniola.com. Until next time, take care.